I invite you to join me in your copies of God's Word. We'll be continuing in the book of Colossians chapter 1, looking this evening at verses 3 through 8. Colossians 1, 3 through 8. And we began this epistle last month, looking at verses 1 through 2, Paul's introduction there. If you recall, this is a unique situation for Paul. Paul did not plant this church. In fact, as far as we know, uh, Paul has never met any of these believers that are here in this church. As far as we know, he's never visited the city of Colossae. If he bumped into one of these uh, Christians on the street, he likely wouldn't recognize them. He doesn't know what their place of worship looks like. It's Epaphras who planted the church. It's Epaphras who labors there with the church. Paul has never met them, but Paul is writing this letter to them to encourage them to build them up and to warn them of the dangers of false teachings that are present in their midst. He's writing to them, not getting on to them as he does in some of his letters. We don't really find a rebuke here. They're, they're doing well, so to speak. They've, they've been standing strong. They've been, uh, as far as we can tell, not influenced per se by these false teachings as we see in some of, other, uh, of Paul's other letters. But he's writing to them, Uh, likely sensing how serious these threats are, these false teachings which are coming in all around them. And he's wanting to make sure that they're encouraged in their faith, that they're built up, that they remain steadfast and persevere as to not turn away from the true faith. Now he began that encouragement in verses 1 through 2, what we covered last time by telling us basically that our relationships define us. Our relationship to God, the church, and to Christ. And he started out with, I think, a really powerful encouragement for the church there and for us. That we are saints, we are family, and we are in Christ. Yet Paul being Paul, uh, that's not enough for him. He continues in these words of encouragement and comfort. The believers in the church, uh, they might be having their faiths undermined and assurances shaken, or at least that seems to be what the false teachers are trying to do. Now, we don't know exactly what the false teaching is. It's never named for us in the epistle here. But it's likely that at least one of the false teachings that was present from what we read in Paul's language throughout the letter was an early form of what we call Gnosticism. And what you had present, as Paul will repeatedly uh, use the phrase fullness, you'll find that phrase repeated throughout the book of Colossians, is most people agree that have studied the book that it seems that these false teachers were trying to convince the church here that though they had received the gospel, though they had received Christ, that they were missing out on something. They had gotten some good news. They had maybe started their religious walks, but there was some aspect of religiosity that they were missing out on. Some spiritual experience, so to speak, uh, that wasn't with the gospel that they had received. And so lest they begin to buy into that and be persuaded by these false teachings, Paul wants to continue to encourage them to stand firm on the foundation of the message that they received. He wants to strengthen their assurance that their Christianity, the message they receive, the message they now believe, is the real deal. That there's not one ounce of truth that they're missing out on. That there's not any spiritual experience or spiritual level of mystery that they somehow haven't received yet. That's what we read Paul doing here today. To put it simply, he's strengthening their assurance. He's strengthening their assurance. And so if you'll pray with me one more time, we'll dig into his word and see what Paul 
and God offers to us in his word. Let's pray. Father, you are good and your word is good. We pray that as we hear it preached now, that you would grant us eyes to see, that you would make our ears able to hear, that you would soften our hearts, removing any distractions or temptations, so that we would be softened and enabled to receive this word as it is preached. Father, we pray that it would grow us, that it would challenge us. But Father, we do pray more than anything, I think, for us as you intended to the original hearers of this that we would be encouraged. As we face trials and temptations, as our culture more and more, it seems, every week grows further and further and further away from biblical truth and biblical reality, as our students and even adults are tempted in life by those around them to abandon truth, tempted to think that they're missing out on something, Father, we pray that we would be encouraged by this word. That we would be strengthened in our own assurances that what we have is the real deal. That our Christianity is biblical Christianity. That the truth of your word is truth. That it is inerrant, infallible, unchanging, regardless of how the times change. Father, we pray all this to your glory and your people's good. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. This is God's sufficient, inerrant, powerful word. Hear it now. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven... Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. And so Paul is strengthening theirs and strengthening our assurance. He's strengthening our assurance, and he's going to do so in two ways. In two ways this evening. He's pointing us to the recognition of fruit, the recognition of fruit, and the recipient of praise. The recognition of fruit and the recipient of praise. Now we're first, we're going to... Look past the first few verses. I promise you we're going to come back around to them and you'll, you'll see why hopefully in a minute. But we're going to look first at verses 4 through 5 at how Paul points us and them to the recognition of fruit. Paul tells them, Since we have heard of your faith in Christ and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, though we and though Paul certainly should make a habit of giving all the thanks to God, and we'll see him do that in a moment. That's our whole second point. The consistency and the distinctiveness of their Christian walks has not gone unnoticed by the apostle, and it's not wrong for him to rightfully so brag on them a little bit. He, he wants to encourage them. They're, they're doing well. They're standing strong. He acknowledges it. That's how he encourages them. 
He builds them and he wants to strengthen their assurance that what they have is real deal Christianity. That they're not, like we said, missing out on some mystical aspect of faith or religiosity that they don't have. The first way he does that is by telling them to look at their fruits. How do they know that what they have is real faith, is real religion, is true religion? He says, look at your walks. Look at the distinctive lives that you live. Look at how different you are than those around you. And hopefully it didn't go unnoticed what they are. Does it sound familiar to you, brothers and sisters? He tells them it's faith, love, and hope. This is the classic threefold phrase that we read throughout the New Testament over and over again. Faith, hope, and love. The only difference is Paul changes up the order here a little bit. Paul wants to strengthen their assurance. And he does so in a way that makes a lot of sense. Here are clear markers, clear fruits that distinguish you from the world around you. These are things that set you apart. They make you look different. They make you act different. Look at how different you are. The first mark he points out to them is their faith in Christ. And I think it makes sense to start here. Of course Paul would start with faith. There's no Christian life without faith. There's no Christian distinction without faith. There is no grounds of assurance without faith. You might want to say, well, well, duh, obviously, I promise you, it's not as readily apparent to everyone as you might think. Go to 100 people here in our country, in, in the South even, and ask them if they're going to heaven. And what I've found is at least 90 out of the 100 are going to answer in the affirmative. But if you give the follow-up question of how do they know that, see how few of them respond with any version or variation of faith in Christ. They don't respond with that answer. Every other religion on the planet emphasizes your works, your strivings, your doings, your need to do, your need to read, your need to do enough things, or alternatively the things that you need to abstain from doing in order to get to paradise or nirvana or peace or whatever the word is that that given religion uses for heaven. Consider Buddha's last words to his followers. Strive without ceasing. How encouraging is that? Strive without ceasing. That's what he left to the millions of followers that he would have. Let that sink in. That's the way that they think that they're making it to their version of heaven. Striving without ceasing. Day in, day out. And in my experience, the majority of folks even who call themselves Christians, if I can be honest aren't giving responses that are that much better. It's usually the same as the others. Some form of self-righteousness or works. Go door to door. Do some, some street evangelism, if that's what you want to call it. And ask folks, do you think you're going to heaven? You'll get yes most of the time. Ask them why. And here's some of the responses that I've heard most commonly. Well, I'm a good person. You know, at the end of the day, I've made some mistakes, but, but my good deeds outweigh my bad. So, you know, on that cosmic scale, I think I'm going to come up good. You might even hear, well, I, I go to church. I read my Bible every now and then. I, I pray. Hey, I give to charity. But the reality is this isn't faith, and it's not really ultimately any different than Buddha's encouragement to his followers. It's not faith, at least not faith in Christ. We might rightfully call it a type of faith. It's a faith in self. 
That's what it is, really, at the end of the day. It's still faith either way, but it's a faith in yourself to be able to get you across the finish line. But this isn't a faith that's going to save, and it's definitely not a firm foundation for assurance. So we need to be clear to ourselves and to others that if what you're trusting to get you into heaven is any form or variation of you being a good person or of your good deeds outweighing the bad, we need to be clear that you and I can never, ever do enough, know enough, be enough, serve enough, go enough, give enough to even begin to pay that debt that we owe to the Lord. To even begin to bridge that great chasm that exists between us as sinful creature and Him as holy creator. We know what God's word tells us that our best deeds are. He uses quite a disgusting illustration there in Isaiah of filthy rags. Disgusting, dirty rags. I think about every time I read that in one of my barns, uh, there is a box that has just over the last year gotten filled uh, with shop rags from cleaning up oil spills or ash or, or the chicken coop. And, you know, it started out with, I'll get to that eventually, and then it just got kind of so gross, I just wanted to avoid it and leave it in the corner. And it's just gotten grosser and grosser and grosser. It's a box of filthy rags. To some extent now, I have, I think, a, you know, almost kind of a, a spiritual excuse. I, I can tell to Carly, at least, that the reason I'm not throwing it away is because, you know, every time I go in there, I get a good reminder of what my good deeds are before the Lord. You know, so I can't get rid of it because I would just lose out on that sanctification that happens every single time. Well, that's what our good deeds are. They're nothing more than a box of filthy rags. Your best efforts, your best attempts on your best day, your best strivings will always fall short of that which he has required. Because that which he has required is nothing less than perfection. Blameless, spotless righteousness, and only one has ever accomplished that. The only works that should bring you confidence of your eternal home are the works of Christ. Even those marks that Paul is mentioning now, faith, hope, and love, only came as a result of Christ saving them. It's, it's not what got them there. Your righteousness, my righteousness, will never be enough. It can only be the righteousness of Christ imputed and reckoned to our accounts. Your confidence can't be in your works. They must be in Christ's. Your faith cannot be in yourself or a priest or a system or a teacher. It must be in Christ. Isn't this why we sing that hymn, Nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to thy fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. It's not us. But Christ. And so do you have faith in Jesus? His life, death, and resurrection as being sufficient for your salvation. The only means, the only way. Because this is the first fruit, the first mark that Paul points out as an encouragement, yes. But as a reminder, and I think as a challenge for us. This is the first fruit, the first mark that Paul notes that he has heard of in the Colossian Christians. If you have it. Be strengthened in your assurance that what you have is the real deal. Next, Paul mentions their love they have for all the saints. How does Paul know that they are Christians? He's never even met them. One of the ways he says that he has this confidence that they know the Lord 
is because he's heard from Epaphras and maybe even from others of their great love that they have for the church. You know, it's true that there's a sense in which absolutely we're supposed to love everyone. Absolutely, there's, there's some truth to that. There's a general sense in which we are supposed to have a love, right, for every man, woman, and child on the planet. But what Paul is pointing to here is a different type of love. There is a special, particular, specific type of love that we as Christians are supposed to have for other Christians, that we're supposed to have for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Peter says the exact same thing. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, we're given this command. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Notice that second one. Love the brotherhood. We're told in the Gospels, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. So one of the fruits, one of the marks that distinguishes us as it distinguished the Colossian Christians from non-Christians is do we love the church? Don't even have to think more broadly, right, the new covenant. Let's, let's limit it to just those we know here. Do you have a love for your brothers and sisters here in this congregation? Do I love my fellow Christians? This shouldn't be controversial, and I have not really any doubts that it would be here, but one thing I do hear often, and I see article after article every time I think that it's gone away, it pops by, back up some uh, Christian artist writes a book about it or gives a podcast, or they say some variation of what they think is a very clever phrase, but it's not, that I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Have y'all heard that? A lot of people are saying it these days. I love Jesus, but I hate the church. And I just have to say, how ignorant can you be? You're saying, I love Jesus, but I hate that which he loves. I, I love Jesus, but I hate the very thing that he came to earth and laid his life down for. If you say you love Jesus but hate the church, chances are you don't actually love Jesus. It doesn't match up. It doesn't match up to what we see in God's word itself. Why? Because Jesus loves the church. Christ loves the church. And as Christians, what are we supposed to be but little Christ? We're to love that which he loves, which is the church. He commands Christians to do the same. So Paul tells us one of the main ways to spot a Christian, right, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, we could say if, if you love Christians, if you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're a duck. No, you're a Christian. This is one of the signs that he gives us, one of the marks, one of the fruits to keep an eye out for. And that does mean, though, that does mean, it definitely means, right, if it was easy, it probably wouldn't be a commandment. It means even the ones that are hard to love. It definitely means those. It means the ones that look and act differently than you. It means the ones that come from different backgrounds or different cultures. You love them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul here isn't talking about some fuzzy, warm feeling. Y'all know this. Love is a verb. It's an action. It means you love being with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You love worshiping with them and praying alongside them. The, the thought of not getting to worship with them, not getting to be together with God's people hurts you. You love serving and helping them. This is 1 Corinthians 13 love. Being patient, being kind, keeping no record of wrongs, going that extra mile. Self-sacrificial, servant-hearted love. 
And so we could phrase it as a question as we did with the last one. Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ in this way? Do you love Christ's church in this way? If so, then your assurance should be strengthened. Be encouraged. Paul is telling the church at Colossae, I, I know your love you have for the church, and therefore I know your love that you have for Jesus. And finally, hope. And hope isn't just tacked on at the end, thrown on because two would sound weird, three sounds better. Hope is the, the, the groundwork from which the other two flow. This isn't hope the way we use it, right? Uh, I, I hope we don't get an ice storm. That one actually turned out to work out for us, at least for now. So that, that hope panned out. But I was hoping yesterday, as I was looking at the weather channel, and you all know how the weather is in Mississippi just as well as I do. Uh, regardless of what they say, when we get to this time of year, it could be no snow or it could be eight inches. Right? We could wake up to 70 degrees or it could be five below zero. You never really know. And so when we say things like, I hope it's not cold tomorrow, it's really just a shot in the dark. You know, students, when you say, I, I hope I don't fail those exams... You know, how sure is that assurance? How sure is that hope? Hope, the way we use it, is usually just blind, shot in the dark, uncertain, vague, wishing for the best. This isn't the way that it's used biblically. It's not the way that Paul's talking about it here. Hope, biblically, hope, the way it's used here in this epistle, is objective, not subjective. It's certain, not uncertain. This Quote, hope which is laid up for you in heaven is certain, objective, sure, guaranteed. And this is the hope which has gotten the Colossian Christians this far. It's what's enabled them to persevere in their faith, faith in the face of potential Gnosticism and Judaizers. It's what helped, it has helped them persevere in their love of the church and their faith in Christ, even in the midst of trials and temptations and false teachers. It's what's kept them on course, on track. It's what should also prove to them that they're not missing out on anything. That they have the fullness of truth. That they have true religion. And it's this hope, brothers and sisters, which should do, and hopefully does, the same for us. How do we stand firm? Brian, this morning, spoke on sexual ethics. On homosexuality and how we need to stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Canada. Absolutely. But it's not just in Canada, is it? Uh, it's already here. It's been here for a long time. You know, it's, it's crazy how even in my short 27 years on this planet, the, the difference I see now than when I was in high school and middle school. It, it wasn't even talked about. You know, it, it wasn't a normal thing. It wasn't a comfortable thing. It, 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 these type of discussions, sexual identity, do you identify as this or that, that wasn't even a conversation that anyone was having. Now you can't look anywhere, even here in rural Mississippi, without seeing it plastered in front of you. The, the tide seems to be turning away from us, away from biblical ethics, away from Christian ethics. And so how do we stand firm? How do we not weaken our, in, in our assurance? How do we know that what we know is right? How do we grow stronger in it? Paul tells us it's this hope which is laid up for us in heaven. The author of Hebrew tells us this is what Jesus did. How did Jesus endure the cross and despise the shame? It was for the joy that was set before him. Another way of putting it, Jesus kept his eyes on the prize. 
He could deal with the cross. He could deal with the scoffers. He could deal with everything that was going on because he knew what awaited him. We're to do the same. We're to do the same. Paul said he knew this was the case of the Colossian Christians. What a testimony that is, and hopefully a testimony that we can have and share as well. That we should be the ones that when it seems like everything is falling apart, when it seems like everyone is standing against us and what we believe, that others look and see the hope which we have. And how can we have it? How can we have hope when everything seems to be changing? When everything seems to be falling apart? When the world seems to be losing its mind, how can we have hope? Well, simply put, it's because our hope is not for anything in this world. Paul wrote, if only for this world we have hope, we are of all men most to be pitied. Brothers and sisters, our hope is not in anything on this planet. It's not in materialism, in health, wealth, or prosperity, or happiness, or any of that. It's not in the American dream. It's not in a big house and a fenced-in backyard and a nice car. It's not in, in a perfect family. It's not in a best life. We don't live our best lives now. It's yet to come. In fact, if I could be so bold to just be honest, if you're living your best life now and that doesn't change, you're likely headed to hell. The Christian's best life is not now. It's yet to come and we await it. We look forward to it. We long for it. We pray for it. So it doesn't affect us, does it, brothers and sisters? It shouldn't. As everything around us seems to be falling apart, as temptations come in from every side, it is that glory which we await. It's that glory which we long for. It's that hope which helps us to be strengthened in our assurance. How could the Colossian Christians stand firm in knowing that they're not missing out on anything? Because they knew that they had a full treasury awaiting them. And so the first thing which Paul points us to to strengthen our assurance is the recognition of fruit. And the second and last is the recipient of praise. The recipient of praise. Now, look with me at verses 3 and then at verses 5 and onward. Paul sandwiches that first point in between these two. He begins it and ends it. Look with me at verse 3. Paul says, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Verse 5, Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Now, notice something that might be missed or misread or looked over right off the bat. Who is Paul thanking? I'm going to be honest with you, I, I kind of misread it the first time. Paul isn't thanking the Colossians, is he? He's not thanking Epaphras. Who does Paul give the credit to here? God. He's not thanking the Christians in Colossae. He's not saying, thank y'all for how faithful and loving and hope-filled you've been. He acknowledged those fruit. He gives them credit for it a little bit, right? Hey, you guys are doing great. He encourages them. We've already read him doing that, but he isn't giving them the ultimate credit there for what's being done in the church. And he's not thanking Epaphras or crediting him either. That's not to say he hasn't honored Epaphras. Right? He speaks of Epaphras. He, he knows that it's Epaphras who planted this church. But he doesn't give credit to the Colossians. He doesn't give credit to Epaphras. No, he thanks God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when he prays for them. It's the Lord whom Paul credits for the planting and growth of the church there. 
It's God that Paul credits for the salvation of lost souls and their steadfastness in the midst of trials and false teachings. In fact, even what we just read and looked at in verses 4 through 5 where Paul recognizes their fruit, like I said, it's surrounded on both ends. The bookends of this section is credit to God, praising the Lord, thanking the Lord. The praise belongs to God. It is God who does the work. And the chief way he does it is through his word. It's God and his word. It's God and his word that Paul gives the credit to. We see this throughout the scriptures. Luke 8.11. What is the seed? It's not deeds. It's not actions. It's not any person. The word is the seed. Isaiah 55.11. It is the word which when it goes forth shall accomplish the purpose for which God has purposed it. 2 Timothy 3.16. What is it that is useful? It is the word which is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction. It is the word which is useful for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. Hebrews 4.11, the word of God is that which is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the word which pierces the division of the soul and of spirit of joints and marrow. It's the word which discerns the thoughts and intentions of of the heart. This is why Paul tells them, It is the word which is bearing fruit and increasing throughout the whole world. Not them, not him, not Epaphras. It's the word. And pastors and churches would do well to remember this. The word is what bears fruit and causes increase. Not gimmicks, not shows or attractions, not creativity or your education level, or your oratory abilities? What is it that causes increase? What is it which bears fruit? It is God through His Word. So our prayer, hopefully, should be that exact same thing which Luther said. Luther, after... We look at Luther as a giant of the faith, right? I mean, would we be here, right, without what Luther did? We, We should give him some credit. We should give him a little bit of thanksgiving. But notice... What Luther said at the end of all of it. Luther said, I did nothing. The Word did everything. It's sola scriptura and soli Deo Gloria. So Paul doesn't get the credit. Epaphras doesn't get the credit. The Colossians don't get the credit. And brothers and sisters, if new covenant grows, if if God sees fit to see growth happen here in our church, in our community, if fruit starts blossoming every which way that the windows can't even hold it in, if new covenant grows, Brian doesn't get the credit. I don't get the credit. You don't get the credit. It's God and his word. Amen? This is right in line with what we find elsewhere in God's word. Paul himself wrote in 1 Corinthians 3.6, I planted, Apollos watered, but y'all know this, but God gave the growth. As I was finishing up this and, you know, dotting some I's and crossing some T's, uh, making sure I'd said everything that that needed to be said, um, the kids had woken up and Carly took them in the kitchen to our little homeschool room that we have set up to do a craft uh, with Liam. Uh, Carly tries most days, not every day, but most days other than Sunday to do some sort of craft uh, with the boys or or just Liam sometimes. One day it might be finger painting, the next day it might be making ornaments, 
It might be, uh, uh, you know, making some type of object that they can play with. Uh, But she tries most days to do some type of craft with at least Liam. And Liam is always ecstatic. Uh, When when I come out of the back of the house or when I come home, uh, the first thing he wants to do after he's made craft is to show Daddy. Dada, look, Dada, look, Dada, look. He's he's ecstatic, pointing to it, showing it. He wants to get it down and hold it. Uh, And look, I want to preface, of course I'm proud of him. Of course I love it, of, of course I'm proud, uh, but let's be honest. Would any of it happen without Carly being there at every step of the way? It, it is Liam and Sammy's artwork, but it's kind of not, <laughs> right? I'm proud of him, and it, it gets better every week, and it grows his fine motor skills, it grows his brain and his imagination and coordination, uh, but just ask Carly. It's not a hands-off operation. Uh, by any means. Uh, As much as she's thankful for it and she continues steadfastly in it, uh, this is why God gave children mothers. uh, Because she'll tell you, it's probably the most stressful part of her day every single day. Not even close. As much as she loves it, it's a lot of work for her. She's the one who goes out and gets the supplies, not Liam and Sammy. She's the one who researches the creative ideas. She's the one who gets the stuff out of the cabinet, puts it on the table, takes it out of their mouth. So yeah, Liam and Sammy do it. It's their art. We have it all over our house. You can tell we're proud of it. But, but she's the one who patiently walks them through every single step, usually literally holding their hand every single step of the way. None of it would have happened. It wouldn't have started and it certainly wouldn't have finished without Carly directing, guiding, leading, doing, and making sure every step of the way that the project gets done. And I think our Christian walks aren't really that different. They're not really that different. Though we do and we grow and we have faith and love and hope and all these fruits, it's God at every single step of the way. Our Christian lives wouldn't have happened and they certainly wouldn't be brought to completion without God directing, guiding, leading, doing, pulling the proverbial object out of our mouths and making sure at every step of the way that what he needs done gets done. The credit for their faith in Christ and for ours does not belong to you, brother and sister. It does not belong to me. It does not belong to any pastor or teacher, no matter how well-spoken or educated, but rather to the power and love of our Heavenly Father. It is he who began a good work in you. And don't ever forget, it's he who will bring it to completion. And think about this practically for a second. If the credit did lie, if the credit did lie in the hands of yourself or some pastor or teacher, what a horribly unstable foundation that would be. But it doesn't. Paul's whole point here is that 100% of the credit for your salvation rests entirely in the sovereign grace of your almighty heavenly Father, who, as Daniel tells us, does according to his will whatever he pleases. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on his throne and to the Lamb. He is the author and the perfecter, the starter and the finisher of your race. That's a sure foundation that can't be shaken. And so as Paul gives thanks to God, think about this. He's actually teaching us and training us that one of the ways that we can combat lack of assurance and lack of certainty in our hearts is not simply knowing that God is owed our thanks, it's, it's not simply knowing that, but actively doing so. 
That in the habit being formed of continually giving thanks and credit to God, God, that we are retraining our hearts to not look at ourselves, to not think it depends upon us. Paul is saying, in other words, look not at your own weaknesses, your fears, your insecurities, but instead gaze upon your Savior, who said over 2,000 years ago, it is finished. Those were Christ's dying words. Do you remember Buddha's? Buddha's dying words to his followers were, strive without ceasing. And this is at the heart of all false religions. Jesus's were, it is finished. And so if you find yourself struggling with questions like, how do I know that my religion, Christianity, is the true and full religion, that I'm not missing out on something else? Or with questions like, how do I know that I actually am a Christian? Paul points us to two different things to strengthen that assurance. First, recognition of fruits. Do you have faith in Christ, love for his church, and hope in what's, what awaits you? And second and finally, the recipient of praise. Look not to yourselves, brothers and sisters, but instead look to Christ and to what he has, is, and will continue to do so. And to his word, which will always be powerful to save. Would you pray with me? Father, you are good even when we're not. You are gracious and merciful even when we don't deserve it. Which is always. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray now that as we leave this place and go into busy weeks that we wouldn't forget it. Press it upon our hearts. Father, I pray for any who might be here who do struggle with assurance of their salvation or who struggle with questions of whether this faith is the true faith. Father, that you would help them through the power of your Holy Spirit and through these ordinary means of grace to recognize the fruits that you've placed in their lives and to look to the powerful work of you. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.